happy Mother's Day to those of you who are celebrating. Welcome to the Sunday Night Health Show. I am Maureen McGrath, a registered nurse, nurse continence advisor, and sexual health educator. I also host this program every Sunday evening for you, and it's always my pleasure to have you joining in on that. Tonight on the program, we have so much to cover. We're going to go down under and talk about the pelvic floor because these issues can begin at childbirth or when a woman becomes a mother. Uh, Also, we're going to be talking about one frontliner's story of depression and how he has returned from the brink and is going to be here this evening to share his story and hopefully inspire you. Also going to be talking about one of the most heartbreaking things I think that could ever happen to a mother short of losing a child because I think that is probably the absolute worst. But maybe this is second to that. We've got lots to talk about on the program tonight, but right now... Well, this coronavirus, this pandemic, it is continuing to bear down on us. And one area in particular of the healthcare system is feeling the pressure, especially in this third wave that we are all entered into uh, without our permission, quite frankly. Um, but joining me on the line, I'm delighted to have Dr. Nick Hamniski. He's an emergency room physician at Richmond General Hospital in Richmond, British Columbia. And he's going to talk to us about what life has been like in the emergency department these last few weeks. Good evening, Dr. Hamniski. Hi there, Marie. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for joining me. So um, you and I have uh, done a little bit of work together, <laughs> uh, trying to fight against this pandemic and this coronavirus, trying to flatten the curve somewhat. You're working in the emergency department. How have things changed in the last little while? Well, things have definitely gotten busier for us, and it's gotten busier in kind of a couple of different ways. Um, one is that we're definitely seeing more presentations of COVID-19 um, and COVID-19 pneumonia specifically that's, you know, taking up our hospital beds and taking our time um, and kind of just slowing us down in the emergency room overall. But we're also seeing a big change from what we saw last year, which was, you know, at the beginning of the pandemic, older folks were generally what we're seeing coming in being, being very sick and needing ICU care. And now with these new variant strains, we're starting to see younger people in their 40s, 50s, even sometimes younger who were previously healthy and now needing to come into hospital, being placed on oxygen, needing to be admitted to the ICU um, and critically ill. So it's been both busier and the acuity that we're seeing in, in the younger folks is also a big change. And so it's more than just one or two people in their 40s are coming into the emergency department. Um, you're seeing a, a, a much larger number of younger people uh, coming in. Is that correct? Yeah, that, that's that's accurate. So, you know, over my shift time, which, you know, it's only about eight hours in the emergency, we normally in in the first wave, I'd see one or two, and usually they're much older. And now some, some days, especially when the number's are really high, I'd have, you know, two or three people in the 40s or 50s, previously healthy, that are seeing and needing to admit to hospital. And so are they generally people who have comorbidities or um, are they people who are long distance runners or, you know, eat healthy nutrition plans and, you know, or trim, don't have diabetes type 2? What What is um, yeah. the presenting illness uh, in addition to coronavirus, if any? So, yeah, so so initially that, that was very much the case is that 
same thing kind of last year. It's more so the people with comorbidities, so also people with heart disease, hypertension or high blood pressure, diabetes, those kinds of things are would definitely increase the risk of severe illness. But now we're seeing actually a fair number of people who are healthy, who don't take any medications, who don't, or, or and who see their doctor regularly, who get checked and screened for these things, and actually don't need any medications are normally considered healthy, eat well, look well, aren't you know, morbidly obese or anything like that that's contributing to them. And they're still needing to come in and, and need oxygen. So that's a bit of a concerning trend for us. We're still seeing those people and the people who do have comorbidities are still higher risk for coming into um, the emergency and being more sick and unwell. But now that we're, we're seeing these new variants, we're actually seeing some people who really shouldn't be, be there compared to like what we saw last year. It's amazing. How are they presenting? Would you say most present with cough, shortness of breath, uh, desaturation, so their oxygen levels are low? Yeah, so so oftentimes people come in just because they're feeling unwell. Um, they are having fevers that aren't going away. They're feeling really fatigued. They're feeling like they're having hard times actually kind of getting their words out, getting up, doing kind of basic movements. And then when they present to the emergency department, we see, oh, actually your, your oxygen saturation is quite low and you're needing oxygen. And they feel a lot better when they're on, on oxygen. Many people wouldn't necessarily describe that they're actually feeling short of breath. They say that they're feeling weak or unwell. And some people will say, you know, I'm having cough, shortness of breath. But I'd say it's almost, for, for me, it's been anywhere around about 50% who, who don't even describe feeling short of breath but still actually needing oxygen. And are you seeing more men than women or more about equal? Um, it's hard for me to say. You know, I don't know the numbers off, off my head, but when I see people, it's been about equal, I'd say. So it, it, it doesn't discriminate. Um, you know, one thing I think the public may or may not understand is that, you know, you hear a lot of people say, you know, it's just a bad flu. Uh, people have gotten it. I know so-and-so and, and their whole family got it and they survived. Um, but ultimately, it's the impact on the hospital resources. We just need to look to India um, for that. Why do you think that message isn't getting across to people? I mean, you're seeing an increase in the number of younger COVID patients presenting to the emergency department. Why are people passing it off as, um, you know, as a conspiracy theory or uh, masks don't work or it doesn't matter? We're all going to have to get it anyway. And that's our best way to herd immunity. Um, I think there's, there's probably several factors for that. But mostly, you know, in day-to-day life, if you're not working in the healthcare system, you're not really seeing the, the detrimental effects of COVID. Um, and I think that's really what it is. And, and you know, having severe illness from COVID is still a relatively rare event to some degree. But when you're looking at that across a population of, you know, almost 40 million that we see in Canada, that's actually a huge number. And that, that, that's the whole thing is that it is impacting on our healthcare system. And it, the difference between, you know, flu and 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 COVID is, you know, with flu every single year, we do see an increase in numbers. People do get sick from the flu, but not the same number. And now that the impact really is, it does come to our hospital system. So when our hospital system is built to deal with a certain number of patients that comes in, you know, every day, every month, every year, and that's what we've kind of built our system capacity to. And now with COVID, that those numbers increase by a lot and that it decreases our ability to be able to provide the basic things, things like hospital beds and missions, elective surgeries and things like that because we don't have the space and as you mentioned you know the for the most part people who get covid even if they're hospitalized in canada they do well they get oxygen they recover and they go they go on live their lives 
There's a few people who do get a syndrome called long COVID, so they have ongoing effects because of that. So we do see that as well. But for the most part, people get better. But when you get a hospital system that's overwhelmed, you can't treat people even with the basic things like admission or oxygen. And that's what we're seeing in, in India right now. And that's what we're really trying to prevent by having these mass vaccination campaigns and trying to reduce our overall numbers so our hospital can actually deal with all these sick people. Joining me on the line is an emergency room physician, Dr. Nick Humniski, and he's here to continue the conversation about coronavirus and the impact it is having on the emergency departments and the hospitals, as well as younger patients. Dr. Humniski, thank you so much for staying on the line. I I was wondering, where are these younger people contracting, or where do you believe these younger people are contracting coronavirus that is bringing them to the hospital? So it, that's, a, that's a great question, Maureen. And when I talk to my patients about it, oftentimes the whole family has it at that point. And, and sometimes these are multi-generational families or, or just single-generation families. But it seems to be that one person gets it, either they're working or, or something like that. And it tends to be that there's an essential worker or something like that in the home, and they end up getting it through work or through some other means. They bring it to, to home, and it infects everyone. And many of the patients that I actually see aren't getting it from work or something like that. They're staying at home or working from home, but it's because either their kids or their grandchildren go out um, and are often the essential workers going to these these um workplaces and contracting and bringing it back home. So really frontline workers like in the grocery stores and uh, uh, people who work in manufacturing plants, perhaps um, places like that. Yeah. And that's been my experience at least over the last few weeks is that it seems to be, and some people are saying that they have no idea where they got it from either. You know, people who say, oh, we mostly stay at home. We don't see many other people. We go out for groceries. We go, we've gone out to the patio, maybe, which is allowed currently in BC. Um, and we're not sure where we got it. So that, that does happen as well. Yeah, absolutely. I heard today um, that they were going to be, in British Columbia, going to be uh, vaccinating grocery store workers. And I was thinking, like, how many grocery store workers are there? You know, I, I love the numbers. I like to drill down into, <laughs> but I don't imagine it's thousands and thousands. Um, where do you think, you know, what do you think of kind of hotspot vaccinations or, um, you know, frontline workers like that? And, and do we need that data in order to figure out how we can combat this a little bit better or a little faster? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think that's a great point. Um, I'm not a public health expert. I'm not looking at the, the numbers every day. I'm just kind of living the experience. So I, I can't comment directly on how best to go about that. But I, I do I do wonder as well if, if that can be something that, that would be helpful because we are seeing these, these hot spots and these workplaces actually kind of popping up and being clusters. And I do know that that through my experience in terms of what, what we are vaccinating right now is that public health, at least in BC, has been pretty good at trying to direct vaccinations or early entry vaccinations to hotspots. And for example, at Whistler in in BC, they did that because of the variant that was spreading so widely there. And they decided to vaccinate the entire town of Whistler to decrease that um, spread. And at this point, it seems to be working. So I think there's there's an element of them trying to do that and be reactive. Um, But, you know, this is a complicated process. It's a province of of millions of people and different communities are all, all very complex. So I, I know they're, they're trying their best right now to try to do that. But I think we'll probably see that, in, especially in the next few weeks, that they'll probably start opening up um, vaccines to 
most adults over over the age of 18, and especially frontline workers. So we'll see what things happen in the, in the following weeks. Right, as Canada gets more and more uh, vaccine supply, because that has been an issue. Uh, one thing I thought, um, when they were vaccinating kind of the 70-year-old people plus, you know, they weren't working, and a lot of them were staying at home. And so, you know, they were okay. A lot of them retired and, um, you know, not really going out, having their food delivered. They have, they have a little bit more means than, than younger people who are perhaps have to work. Um, so it's interesting. You know, I'm not a public health uh, nurse either, but, um, you know, we, we will learn so much from, from this pandemic and, and how we dealt with it. Um, I just have, as a physician, what do you think of, people who think this is a hoax or, or people who think that the vaccination is a government clinical trial or that, you know, this isn't an issue at all or that masks don't work, all of these messages out there that, uh, you know, we struggle with. Mm-hmm. I, I think, you know, as a physician, it's, it's hard not to be frustrated mm-hmm. <laughs> when we're seeing it frontline versus, you know, and I, I know that many people, the reason that it seems to be that so such a popular idea, I think, amongst these folks is that it is impacting them. Many people are, are losing their jobs or have lost their jobs. It's impacted their life. It's impacted their ability to see their friends, family, kids, their communities. And I understand that people are frustrated. And I think it's an easy way out. And I think it's an easy way to scapegoat the whole situation and try to find someone to blame. And that's a pretty normal response in this, this time. But I do ask people to actually look at the evidence. You know, there's such good evidence that wearing masks does prevent transmission. There's such good evidence that vaccines are preventing deaths. And if you actually look at our numbers now, even though our hospitalizations are up, compared to our second wave in this province, our deaths are not following that same curve, probably because people are vaccinated. So people who say vaccines aren't working, you know, we already are having the epidemiological evidence that, that they are. And I, for those people who are vaccine hesitant, I all I can say is, you know, this is one of the best studied vaccines in terms of the amount of people who are looking at it um, across the entire world. And this is our way out. And if you, if you want to be part of the solution, wearing masks, following public health orders, and getting the vaccine is the best way to do it. And trying to have those honest conversations with people who are really either maybe on, on, on the border of, of not and trying to encourage them as well, because that's, that's what we need in order to actually get over this pandemic. And, and it's so frustrating, and you must see it in the emergency department as well, with the uh, rise in younger people and rise in cases in this third wave, um, you know, that it seems like there will be no end. And, and of course, it has an impact on other people, people who may have coronary artery disease or, or may have an emergency who might not come to the hospital because they're afraid of it or, or there are no resources to help them at the time. I, I know one of the local hospitals has tripled their intensive care unit beds. Um, and, and so I don't think people realize that, but the public is paying for that as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the public is. Our, our healthcare workers are are getting burnt out. We're being pulled in all directions. Um, and the, the ICUs are really struggling. They're trying to get nurses, even who aren't fully trained and doctors aren't fully trained in, in ICU care, because that's how desperate they are to, mm-hmm. to try to staff these, these, these units and these, of these really sick people. So, you know, this is an unprecedented place for our healthcare system and for our ICU system and, and overall for, for this country. And it's, the best way forward is following public health advice and getting a vaccine. 
Thank you so much, Dr. Humniski. I really appreciate you joining me on the program this evening and uh, look forward to having you um, on upcoming segments as well. Great. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited to have my next guest, Kim Vopney is known as the Vagina Coach. She is a personal trainer who uses fitness and movement to help women prevent and overcome pelvic floor challenges like urinary incontinence, prolapse, and feelings of a weak core. She has recently released her fourth book called Your Pelvic Floor, which is a user's guide to all things pelvic health throughout our major life stages. Good evening, Kim, and thank you so much for joining me. Good evening. Thank you very much for having me. And happy Mother's Day to you. <laughs> Likewise. Thank you so much. Uh, it's a tough job, that motherhood, <laughs> I tell you. Um, <laughs> don't we know it? And it all begins, uh, well, long before uh, the pelvic floor, or before we begin to push for a lot of women who have vaginal deliveries. Why is the pelvic floor so important, and why don't we talk about it? It's a good question as to why we don't talk about it. I think it's because there's been so much shame and taboo around it and in, you know, in my mother's generation and before it was just simply something you never spoke about. You didn't ask a healthcare provider. You just sort of accepted it that that's, that's the way it was and everyone just carried on. And I think that has been perpetuated through the generations and through media as well that tell us that light bladder leakage is just part of being a woman and uh, messages like that. So the importance of this group of muscles, when you when you understand the importance and all the functions it plays in our in major parts of our life, it's actually astounding to think that we have received zero education about it. So it's the foundation of our core. It's responsible for supporting our internal organs, bladder, uterus, rectum. It's responsible for controlling our continence poo fart we have to be able to decide or know what wants to come out and decide if it's a good time for that to come out or not it's responsible for pelvic and spinal control and stability it's responsible for our sexual response it has a sump pump action and helps sort of move lymph and lymph and um, and helps with our circulation so really really important jobs and we if at best are told to do your Kegels, and we need a whole heck of a lot more education than just that. And, and many people don't do their Kegels properly, or they don't know how to do their Kegels properly. So can we just have a quick uh, Coles Note version on how to do your Kegels properly? Yeah, it's true. We even have research. Over 50% of women are doing them incorrectly, and it's not their fault because it's a often prescribed exercise, but very rarely is it ever taught. And I like to use different cues and visualizations to help people access a part of the body that, you know, we can see our external genitalia, our vulva, but we can't see the muscles. We can't go and flex our pelvic floor muscles in the mirror like we do a bicep curl at the gym. So it can sometimes be a bit of an elusive territory and visualization can be really helpful. So things like imagining picking up a blueberry with your vagina or your and your anus or sipping a smoothie through a straw with your vagina, or you can even use your own fingers as biofeedback. So a great way to assess if you are doing a cable correctly is to insert one or two fingers into your vagina and imagine picking up a blueberry or even just think about hugging your fingers and trying to gently draw them upwards and inwards into the body. And if you can feel that little hug and if you can feel a gentle drawing up, and also the let go, because we have to remember that a, a Kegel is not just a squeeze. It's 
a contract and a lift and then a let go. We have to remember the relaxation piece. There's a video I have on my YouTube channel called The Core Breath, which watch, walks people through the different steps with some visualization and cues that can be helpful for some. Because women need to ensure, and Kegels aren't just for women, I might add, but tonight the focus is uh, female pelvic health. Uh, women need to ensure that they are engaging the right muscles. Is that correct? Yeah, absolutely. And for some, part of the challenge of thinking, you know, w- wondering if they're doing a Kegel correctly is they, they can't necessarily feel it. So sometimes biofeedback, again, with the fingers or a, a biofeedback device that's actually hooked up to something external that allows you to see when a contract and a relax is happening. But some people, if they hold on to more tension in their pelvic floor, so if they already kind of have some of that pelvic floor contraction already started, then when they do try to do a Kegel, they won't really feel that much because part of that contraction has already started. So for people that have non-relaxing pelvic floor muscles, they may need to work initially on relaxing and releasing tension in the pelvic floor in order to allow that group of muscles to have their full range of motion back again. And so I would imagine an assessment uh, would be important here. And uh, how would a woman seek out a proper pelvic floor assessment? I personally feel the gold standard with regards to assessments is with a pelvic floor physiotherapist. And they are regular physiotherapists with additional training in the pelvis and the pelvic floor muscles, and they are licensed to evaluate and treat beyond the entrance to the vagina. So they can look externally, they look at movement mechanics as well, but then they can also use gloved fingers to assess and treat internally. So they would be looking for things like the position of the organs to make sure they're in their optimal position. They would be assessing the Kegel. Can the person contract, lift, and let go? They would maybe be screening or looking for any scar tissue from potentially childbirth or previous surgeries. They would check to see if the muscles work in a balanced way. So is one side of the pelvic floor maybe a little more resistant, has a little more tension than the other, and they would work to balance that out. And sometimes even common things like constipation, a lot of people don't associate that with their muscles. And sometimes overactivity in the pelvic floor can be a contributor to constipation. So And because constipation is such a a detrimental piece to the pelvic floor, I I definitely recommend anybody who is experiencing constipation to see a pelvic floor physio. But really, I say, if you have a vagina, go see a pelvic floor physio once a year, just like you see the dentist. I think that they are, we have great press for the dentist. We've been conditioned from a very young age to brush our teeth twice a day, floss, go see the dentist once or twice a year, even if you have no toothache. And I believe if we had the same press with our pelvic floor where we introduce the concept at a young age that it's a very important group of muscles. And then once we become sexually active, we benefit from seeing a pelvic floor physio once a year, even if we have no symptoms, but especially if we do, to help screen for issues so we can catch them earlier and give people an opportunity to prevent or minimize some of the major challenges that people deal with. You've made so many great points in there and also happened to bring up so many issues that so many women suffer. And uh, so you've mentioned urinary incontinence, you mentioned constipation, and you mentioned prolapse. Um, Women can also experience um, other issues like vaginal dryness and also perhaps even um, 
other gastrointestinal issues that can be related to the pelvic floor as well. But I'd like to um, focus a little bit on the urinary incontinence. And you're so correct. It drives me crazy. And I know you and I have discussed this before that the commercials on TV are just like, just go ahead, accept the fact that you leak urine and just put this little pad on. Um, There are so many other treatments uh, for urinary incontinence, correct? Yeah, absolutely. I I cringe at the commercials as well. And and I recognize that they, for some, they may play a role, but I believe it should be a temporary role. And if there was education provided that this is not a solution, this is something that is helping while you seek treatment, I think that that would put people in a, a different frame of mind. And the cost of pads, I added it up over a person's lifetime. And, you know, a lot of people start leaking urine when they're in their early 30s sometimes. And if you add that up over a lifetime, it can be twenty to $50,000 that people are spending, not to mention the cost of the environment. And because they're, it's, it's really a Band-Aid, it's, a, it's not a solution, it's just uh, it's masking the problem essentially. But if people, again, see pelvic floor physiotherapists, that's one. And uh, there was a statistic that eight, uh, pelvic floor physios have an 80% cure rate not an improvement, but a cure rate with urinary incontinence, which is really significant. I also believe that we can benefit... Sorry, go ahead. No, you go ahead. I was just going to say, I I think we, beyond seeing the physio and and Kegels, my approach to Kegels is there, yes, we have to do, have it like an element of a Kegel practice, but if we could bring those Kegels into movement so that we're dynamically training our pelvic floor, it becomes much more powerful. So we can use our existing workout and add our pelvic floor contractions into something like a bicep curl or into a, a push-up or into a squat. And that trains the pelvic floor to react more dynamically rather than, you know, sit at every red light and, and do three sets of 10 Kegels. <laughs> My guest is Kim Vopney. She is known as the vagina coach. Can we say that on the air? I think so. I just did. She's a personal trainer who uses fitness and movement to help women prevent and overcome pelvic floor challenges. And if you're just joining the program, she mentioned a few little hot buttons there, ladies. And oftentimes these issues can occur as a result of having had a vaginal delivery when you became a mother. Um, But it's not necessarily associated with that either because um, you can certainly have urinary incontinence even if you've never had a baby before or prolapse because that can be related to uh, genetic tissue uh, or genetics, I should say. Uh, And also she mentioned the big C word, constipation, which a lot of people suffer from. So, Kim, thanks for staying on the line. Tell me all you know about urinary incontinence and... and, uh, I know that uh, many women believe that it's normal and they believe they have to suffer with that, but they don't, do they? No, absolutely not. So there's messages that tell us that, but my big mission and many others is to get people aware that it's very common as a problem, but it's, it's very, very treatable as well. And also that there's different types. So there's stress urinary incontinence where you leak a little urine with a bit of exertion like exercise. There's urge incontinence where all of a sudden you have an overwhelming urge and you can sometimes experience a full release of your bladder. You can have a mixture of the two. You can even have anal incontinence where gas or stool leak out. And all can be treated with bladder training, with um, lifestyle management, with food. So looking at potentially any bladder irritants that you may be consuming and also pelvic floor exercise. And I also, as I was saying earlier, 
a gold standard being an assessment with a pelvic floor physiotherapist. And there's one other exercise technique that is, it's been around in Europe for many, many years, but it's, it's, and it's been in Canada and North America for probably 10 years or so that also very effective with incontinence and prolapse, which is called the hypopressive method or low pressure fitness. So there's lots of options available to people. Yeah. And so oftentimes uh, women will experience prolapse, for example, and they, before I say that, I actually want to get back to the bladder irritants because I get this question a lot. Um, Some of the bladder irritants that, uh, so uh, bubbly drinks, alcohol, tea, uh, coffee, although sometimes we recommend, um, you know, one cup of coffee a day is good. A lot of people think green tea is great, so they drink tons of it. But I often say to patients, um, you know, everything good is bad, like citrus fruits and chocolate and wine. Uh, so you may notice that uh, your bladder is a little more irritated if you're consuming a number of those different products. Um, getting on to prolapse, another issue that many women um, can face when women are lifting, they may not engage their pelvic floor. What are some of the issues and some of the risk factors around getting a prolapse where the organ actually falls out of its place? Yeah, so organ prolapse is very, very common. And again, it's actually in statistically more common than incontinence, but very rarely talked about. And some of the risk factors can be pregnancy, childbirth, vaginal childbirth in particular, but people with cesarean can have it as well heavy lifters. So, and it's not just if you lift weights, it's people who have chronic heavy lifting. So whether they participate in high intensity heavy lifting on a regular basis as part of their job or as part of their exercise program. And when you can change your strategy, sometimes maybe even change the posture or the position that you're in when you're lifting weights, it can be helpful in terms of adding a layer of protection and preventing things from getting worse or from it developing in the first place. Absolutely. And there's lots of treatments for prolapse as well. Women may often feel that bulge down below. Um, Something's uncomfortable. They feel like something's falling out or something is in the way. Um, Mm -hmm. So uh, a pessary is a a great option, which is a small medical grade silicon device that you're fitted for and it's inserted into the vagina. Um, But the, the Kegel exercises and the hypopressives that you recommend, can they help with prolapse? Yeah, absolutely. And and hypopressives is the one thing that I have found that if you catch a, a prolapse early enough, and this is a plug for why I recommend pelvic floor physio on a on a annual basis, when you catch especially a bladder and a uterine prolapse early, so kind of around a stage one or stage two, you have a potential of improving it or even even reversing it completely. I have seen that in many, many of my clients. Rectiseals, when the rectum bulges into the vagina, they're a little trickier and may not respond as as well to that, but it's certainly great at managing and preventing things from getting worse. Kegel exercises are the voluntary piece. They help kind of build up a little bit of bulk within the, the tissue and, and ensure that the muscles react can react strongly enough and in time. And then hypopressives works on the involuntary aspect of the core, and it has kind of a vacuum effect that sort of draws the viscera up and works to maintain it when the practice is done over time. So it's a really powerful technique for prolapse. And these, in addition to adequate fluid management and bran, um, senna perhaps, uh, are beneficial for women who suffer with constipation? Yeah, absolutely. I recommend between 25 and 30 grams of fiber with a blend between soluble and insoluble and drink lots of water. So aim for 
you know, even two liters, two to three liters of water, you have to have a lot of move, uh, liquid moving through your body as well and not coffee, tea, those types of things, but actually clear water and fluids and that will help keep your stool easy to pass without straining. Always great advice, Kim. And so your fourth book, I know you also have some online courses as well, but I do want to mention again your your fourth book, Your Pelvic Floor, is a user's guide to all things pelvic health throughout major life stages. And where can somebody pick up this book? It's available on good old Amazon, <laughs> pretty much anywhere. And uh, it is in some uh, chapters locations depending on where you live as well but uh, online Amazon especially if you've got Prime you can have it in a couple of days and start reading. (laughs) And how can people get in touch with you if they want to book an appointment? Vaginacoach.com and all my social media handles as well are Vaginacoach and I would be happy to help. Thank you so much and thanks for joining the program and sharing all that information Kim. Appreciate it. I I appreciate you having me. Thanks. Joining me on the line is mental health advocate, keynote speaker, and support mentor. He's also an assistant fire chief, a TEDx presenter, an author, and a mental health advocate. He is Steve Serbic, and he is here to talk to us about his new book, The Unbroken, a firefighter's memoir. Steve, thanks so much for joining me on the line tonight. Thanks for having me, Maureen. Fabulous book, extremely important, mental illness, mental health, depression, anxiety, suicidal ideation, death by suicide, all stigmatized, all taboo. And you have written this beautiful memoir, I mean, that will make you cry, make you laugh, (laughs) make you smile, and it'll give you uh, inspiration and hope in what can be a very dark world. Tell us a little bit about your background and uh, how this book came to be. Well, what I tell people who are struggling or battling depression or sadness or whatever they want to call it is once you get on the other side of it in a position of strength like I am, you can talk about it. And I'll tell your listeners right now, Maureen, if I can write a book, anybody can. Um, I mean, I, I wrote most of this book through clinical counseling and... I wrote notes. I took notes. Um, when I first went to clinical counseling after a series of bad calls, um, my wife pretty much forced me to go. So I wasn't open-minded enough to sit with a health professional and, you know, discuss the things that I needed to talk about. And after several clinical counselors and psychologists, um, I sat down with one um, after I had a mental health crisis. And you know, she said, what do you want to talk about? And I said, I don't want to talk about my childhood. And she said, okay. And I was like, awesome. So right away I made a connection with her because every other counselor and psychologist wanted to talk about that. And I didn't want to talk about that. I was, I had shame. I did things that I was embarrassed of and I was embarrassed of my family. I felt like a loser when I was a kid. I just blocked it out of my memory. And what happens when you do that is you take up storage in your brain and your, and your ability to sometimes just get through day day to day and um i chose a career as a first responder and you know i was living the life playing lacrosse hockey i had a great job you know i was a pretty heavy drinker because that's what we did and you know everything was working fine until it stopped working and that's what my book is about it's about a moment in my career when i have a mental health crisis and i talk about how clinical counseling got inside my head and unraveled my story and help me process it. And 
it's it's something everybody can do. But I I never wrote those notes down to write a book. It was something I did as therapy. And many years later, I met this incredible human being. I mean, he was only in my life for three years. He got me out talking about my story and mental health. And, you know, we were trying to change the stigma in the fire service because, you know, we had an epidemic of suicides. And, yeah, I felt really good about what I was doing. And, and that person was a mentor for me. He encouraged me. He just kept me going. And then he took his life in 2019. And um, all those emotions and all those issues that I had back when I had my mental health crisis came crashing back many years later but what was interesting this time is I was surrounded by psychologists and clinical counselors that I had been speaking with or I'd met and I managed to recover very quickly this time and I learned a lot about myself and he said you know that stuff that you wrote down you should write it and put it in a book and show it to your kids because it would help them deal with their own stresses so that was the that was how the book became and I wrote I spent a couple hours a day sometimes an hour and I just kept writing and writing and writing. And then I brought it to my son's friend and I said, Hey, can you clean this up for me? And he said, you should show this to an editor. And I did. And she said, you got to publish this. And I'm like, I don't know if I want to publish. It's very personal. And she said, I think it would help people. I think what you're trying to do, this is, this is important. And I said, okay, I agreed to do it. If we remove four parts and if you read the book, you would know what those parts were. There's some parts in there that were very hard for me to push publish, but so many people have reached out to me since I published this book and told me it made them think about their childhood or those moments for a boy, the confusing parts of puberty or things that you did or your first girlfriend or things like that. It made other people relate to their childhood and their issues. And yeah, now that I'm on the other side of that, um, I can speak to it. And I, I, you know what? It feels really good about what I'm doing and the journey that I'm on. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's a lot easier for me to talk about now than it was um, at the very beginning. How's that? Mm-hmm. Um, a couple of things there. So the counselor didn't want you to talk about your childhood, uh, but obviously uh, your childhood played a role um, in this. And you must have had some fear around talking about your childhood. Does it always go back to childhood for people? No, I don't think it does. But I think what happens is, in my case, like I rarely compare myself to anybody, um, but a lot of people have told me they have very similar stories and they've the same thing has happened to them. For me, um, I worked so hard at trying to forget my childhood and the embarrassment of my family and I, every day that was in my head. Like you have 50,000 thoughts a day. Many of those were trying to block out those, those memories of my childhood. And you know what? Once I sat down with a clinical counselor who said I didn't have to talk about it, within a couple of sessions, I'm openly talking about my childhood. And that's a good counselor. That connection, she gave me tools. She helped me rewrite my own narrative. So I got to look back at my childhood and go, geez, I did that. That was a little embarrassing. Or, geez, my parents were alcoholics, but they weren't bad people. Geez, I wish I didn't break into those things or steal those things. But I was a dumb kid. Like, I completely looked at my whole life differently with the help of a health professional. It was it was amazing. That's why I'm a big proponent of clinical counseling. And it's not for everybody, but I, it definitely changed my life. My guest is Steve Serbik. He is a 
firefighter. He's a mental health advocate. He's a keynote speaker, a support mentor, and an author of The Unbroken, a firefighter's memoir written to help you, you who are suffering with mental health issues. Steve, thanks so much for staying on the line. It's a great book that you've written. Um, Very, very detailed, very informative, very helpful. Um, Now, Steve, you talked in the earlier segment about a mental health crisis that you had, and then you kind of rebounded um, after your friend died by suicide, a friend who was very supportive to you. For the listeners, can you describe what a mental health crisis is, what you mean by that? Well, for me, I mean, people survive events in their life when they they get a divorce or they have a death or they lose a loved one. And for first responders, um, many of them came from, in my case, I came from uh, a childhood that I wanted to become a helper. And that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to make a difference. And I had a childhood dream to be a firefighter. And I became that person. And I got to put on a uniform and it felt so amazing. And you know, at the beginning of my career, I loved going to those calls, you know, the fires, and I loved it. And, and I, I became a casual drinker and a strong drinker. And anytime I went to a bad call, a shooting or, a, you know, a car crash or something that bothered me, I would drink. And I'm not joking when I say it worked for me. It worked for me for about 12 years. And then my daughter got uh, deathly ill and was in Children's Hospital and was very sick. And we, we were told she might die. And I went back to work after about a week and spent time with my son. And in that week of work, I uh, attempted to resuscitate three kids, uh, three, two mm-hmm. babies, a two-month-old, a three-month-old, and an 11-year-old girl. And I connected those kids with my daughter who was dying in the hospital. Mm-hmm. And I learned that through clinical counseling. And I had a rule in my head that said kids should not die. And he, this, this, psychologist and clinical counselor both helped me change that rule to kids will die and I can deal with it. And first responders struggle with events when they relate them to their, someone they know or, or personally attach themselves to it. And that's what I did because I had rules in my head that said things shouldn't happen. Unfortunately, I'm in a profession where they did. I be, I became overwhelmed with sadness over a period of time, and my wife noticed my drinking increased. Um, it didn't work like it did before, but of course, like anyone, I, I drank more. Um, I became angry. I became irritable. Uh, the world was there was nothing in the world that was shiny anymore. Um, I would sit at my kids' birthday parties, and I wouldn't want to be there. Um, yeah, that's what happens. And I had a very supportive wife and I could have told her anything, but I didn't want to because I didn't think she'd understand. And I didn't want to be a pity party and all those things. And that's how divorces happen. And that's how, in my case, people intervene. And that's what I do now. They intervene in my life and got me to someone who could help me. And that was a clinical counselor in my case, could be a psychologist, could be a a doctor. But in my case, it was a clinical counselor who made a connection with me and helped me uh, helped me out of that, that dark time. And it was very dark. And are you still drinking today? No, you know what, Maureen, I have so many rules in my life that, uh, I practice, um, a very healthy lifestyle. Mm-hmm. Um, I wouldn't deny that at Christmas time or a wedding that I'd have a glass of wine, but I could go six weeks or two months without having another one. I, I don't have 
um, the desire that I did before when it comes to drinking. And I had a, it's interesting because I sat with a psychologist and he asked me if I was an alcoholic or I had a behavioral issue. And he broke down why I drank and I drank to cope. And that's what people have to understand when they're, you know, I've never done weed, but I've heard it does, it has the same effect. You know, drinking weed, it, it's a coping mechanism, but it's not the best choice for dealing with trauma or trying to get through, you know, tough circumstances. I, uh, I was drinking half a 26 or a day at my worst. Wow. And, you know, people are drinking to numb their pain, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And you know what? Mm-hmm. I'm going to tell you, this is going to sound awful. It worked for a while, mm-hmm. like two to three drinks kept me going that's what it did until Mm -hmm. it didn't and then i I started to increase my drinking and that's what happens to people Mm -hmm. and and what do you say to somebody who can see themselves in your story you're on the other side of it congratulations it's awesome Um, but there are people who are who are suffering who are thinking some of the same things you're thinking you were thinking like about shame and embarrassment and Mm -hmm. and you know having these narratives these shoulds basically in their heads what advice would you give to them it's interesting because I'm doing an intervention with somebody right now with a couple of other people and we're trying very hard to help someone that we care about. And he reminds me of myself. Um, he's given up. Uh, he's exhausted mentally, physically, um, hates the world. It's, you know, um, I would tell them that there is help. They're not alone. You know what? It might be hard work, but I can assure you that people that are really struggling, I use the same line. There's one thing you've done your whole life. You have gotten through bad days. Your batting average of getting through bad days is 100%, and you can do this. And we just try and get people to tomorrow, and that's what someone did for me. That's exactly what they did to me when I'd given up on myself. And that's what I do for other people, and that's what I'm not a doctor or anything. I get people to a clinical counselor, to the hospital, to a psychologist. That's what I do. I, I, I have a whole support network that I work with and we do that. We, people reach out to us and we help them. But I would tell people there is hope. This is a very tough time. Um, Mm -hmm. Lots of people are struggling. You know what, when your sleep is affected and that's usually when you get into the crazy eight and that's what happened to me. I was doing two to three hours a night. Um, You gotta get that sleep back. Exercise is one of the best ways to battle sadness and depression. Just get moving. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, if if you're drinking, if you're, struggling with drugs go see your doctor and just be honest like just be honest with somebody and if you have a good relationship with your doctor just sit down with your doctor and that's how the name of the book came about was i was crying in my doctor's office and she asked me what do you want and i said i just want to be unbroken and she Mm. said you're not broken you're wounded (laughs) so i you know and that that analogy is that's true. I felt like there was no hope, but she said, no, you're wounded. It's just like pulling your hamstring, hamstring, Steve. You've got to go to physiotherapy for your mind. And that, that comment to me empowered me. And she just held my hand. Like I was so supported out of that dark place. I know some people don't get that, but I assure you there's help. And there's one thing in your darkest day. If you're all alone, phone the crisis line. Just, Make that call. Absolutely. Steve, we're up against the clock here. I'd like to talk to you all evening. How can people get your book, The Unbroken? They can go on Amazon. They can 
they can go to the local Freezing Press bookstore. It's amazing. It's at Indigo. It's, it's at Barnes & Noble. Um, it's out there. And thank you for your support. And Anytime. I'd like to just throw a big... Right, thank you. Thanks for listening to the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. You can subscribe, rate, or review on your favorite podcast app. And if you've got a question about your health, the nurse is always in. So email me, nursetalk at hotmail.com, and I just might answer your question anonymously, of course, on next week's show. For now, have a happy and healthy week.